Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts chapter 4, where in just a moment I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that will be the foundation for today's message. Acts chapter 4. As you're turning to Acts 4, let me make just a few brief remarks of introduction. First of all, thank you for inviting me. I am the president of Golden Gate Seminary, and Golden Gate and Southeastern Seminary are alike in many ways. But one of the things that is uh, different about us is that we are as far apart geographically as any two seminaries can be in the Southern Baptist Convention. So I'm not by this way very often, but Dr. Aiken knew I was on the East Coast this week and invited me to stop by and preach in chapel, and I'm delighted for the honor. Uh, A second thing I'd like to say is uh, to the brother who gave the testimony, Lee, where did you go? There you are. Thank you. Uh, it, Danny mentioned, uh, Dr. Aiken mentioned in my, in, in, my, in my introduction that I was a church planter. In 1989, I went to Portland, Oregon and planted a church. It was and is the church of my dreams. Listen closely. It is still the most significant thing I've ever accomplished in ministry, being a part of planting that church. When you're a church planter or a pastor, <clears throat> you are a leader at the closest place to God's heart in the universe, and that is the local church. And I want to thank you for planting that church. What you put on the screen may have been the best church mission statement I have ever seen. And I so am delighted for your ministry and for what you're doing. And if you're here today thinking about church planting or anything connected, I say you are hearing the voice of God. Get after it. It is at the core of what God is doing in the world today. But despite my conviction about that and the reality that I am a church planter masquerading as a seminary president, I've chosen to preach on something else today. A few weeks ago, the Southern Baptist Convention observed a national day of prayer or a day of solemn assembly. It went by different names in different locations. I was one of the agency leaders that signed off on that letter calling for Southern Baptists to make a day of prayer a priority during this season. We did that for a number of reasons. We believe, first of all, that individual Christians needed that kind of day and that churches needed that kind of day. But perhaps most importantly from our perspective, we believed that our denomination needed that kind of day. Well, in preparation for our day of prayer at Golden Gate Seminary, I spent some time studying prayer meetings in the New Testament, trying to discover some patterns, principles, practices of prayer meetings in the New Testament that we might more effectively have a day of prayer that reflected a scriptural guideline. I found one of those that's become very meaningful to me over the past few weeks, and I thought I'd preach about it today. Now, I'm not preaching about it in preparation for and leading you to what you may have already done, but every one of you is going to be leading prayer meetings in the future. I hope so anyway. Every one of you not only will be leading prayer meetings, but hopefully you're in the daily practice or the regular practice of having your own prayer meetings with the Lord. And so today I want to preach to you from Acts chapter 4 about a prayer meeting and teach you what it teaches us about that kind of experience. Now, first of all, Acts chapter 3 and 4 are one long story. The story begins in Acts chapter 3 with the healing of a lame man. 
That healing resulted in a large crowd gathering and then Peter preaching. After the, excuse me, Peter and John, but after the preaching, these men were arrested. They were arrested and put on trial the following morning for what they had done. And I want you to pick up their story with me in Acts chapter 4 at verse 13. Now, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and knew that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. But so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what, they, what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this sign of healing had been performed. Now, what I've narrated in red sets the sto- set, uh, narrates the story for the prayer meeting. Verse 23. After they were released, they went to their own fellowship and reported to all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, They raised their voices to God. Now we're in prayer meeting. Unanimously and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city... Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healings, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed... The place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. Now, what happened in this prayer meeting, particularly the long prayer that's recorded here, can be divided into two parts which are instructive for us about how to conduct ourselves in a prayer meeting. The first part of the prayer meeting is this. We start by rehearsing truth by rehearsing truth that's applicable to our situation. Do you notice that starting in verse 24, all the way down to the end of verse 28, or to the end of verse 28, that there's no request made of God? That this long part of the prayer meeting from 24 to 28 is in reality a recounting to God scriptural truth that is applicable to their situation. They start in verse 24 by recounting something about God's power. They say, God, you made the heavens, you made the earth, you made the sea and everything in them. They start quoting Psalm 146, 6, 
back to God and reminding Him that He is the Creator of all. And because of that, He has great power. Now, when I started studying this, I was a bit puzzled. They are rehearsing this truth and reminding God of what He has written in Psalm 146. Now, frankly, I think God knows what's there, don't you? <laughs> but nonetheless, a great deal of the energy of this meeting was not just asking God for things. We're going to get to that. But was instead rehearsing God's truth about their situation. They started with His power. Then, and I don't really like a lot of alliteration in preaching, but it's just here, so I'm going to give it to you. They second talked about God's plan. They went on in verses, 20, uh, verses 27 and following and said, excuse me, verse 25 and said, the Gentiles are raging, the peoples are plotting, the kings of the earth are taking their stand. And as if that was supposed to be a surprise, they said, well, it really wasn't. For in verse 27, they said, you, just what you predicted, God, all of this has taken place. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, just like you said, everyone has arrayed themselves against you and against the preaching of your word. Everyone is arrayed against your plan. So they say this, God, you created everything. Your power is evident here. God, you predicted by your plan that all the rulers of the earth and all the assembled rulers of our, of our people would oppose what you want to do. And God, right here is your plan unfolding right in front of us. So we rehearsed truth about that. And then they got on down to God's purpose. They said, so God, this is all taking place in verse 28 to do whatever your plan has predestined to take place. Now, of course, the temptation is to turn sideways and preach for a half hour on predestination. We don't need that. I simply want to underscore in this context that they are emphasizing that God had a purpose for what was happening in the plan that was taking place in the context of His power. That's what's meant here in this context. Well, these people started a prayer meeting, a prayer meeting by rehearsing God's truth. They quoted Psalm 146. They quoted Psalm 2. They reminded God of all of this truth about their situation. Before you get to asking God for things in prayer, it is essential that you get your perspective right on God and your problems. When I ask the question, why would they spend so much time doing this? The answer is, not because God needed to be reminded, but because they did. You see, when you rehearse truth in the context of prayer, it shifts your focus from the problems you're facing to the God you're serving. It changes your focus from the, gla from the gaze on your problems, or excuse me, to, 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 to get you to stop gazing at your problems and give them a glance, and instead, from glancing at God, you fix your gaze upon Him. I hope I got that right. You know what I'm trying to say. I'm on a weird time zone. Be patient with me. That's why the first part of a prayer meeting, whether it's in a worship service like this or in your private time in the morning, the first part of that time should be spent in God's Word, getting your heart, your life, your focus right before you move into the asking mode of prayer meeting. How do you do that? Well, a lot of ways. We've done it some here today. You can sing God's Word. You can read God's Word. You can speak God's Word. And you can even hear God's Word preached as part of prayer meeting preparation. But friends, listen. The emphasis in this passage 
The strong emphasis in this passage is that when we come to prayer, the focus is on God and His power and His plan and His purposes. First of all, foremost of all, that is the focus of prayer meeting. Now we get to the second part of the message. And that is, it's also possible to ask God to intervene on your behalf. Do you understand the high privilege of that? The high privilege of that. That we have a Father that we can approach and we can ask to intervene on our behalf. Now, I have three children. I also have a large student body. Students occasionally ask me for things, and when it's in my power and it's appropriate, I try to grant those requests. But when my children call me, my ears perk up immediately, and I find myself not just trying to accommodate their requests, but I find myself trying to find ways to go the extra mile to meet the requests of my children because I'm their father. That's how it is with God. You have the privilege now in the context of prayer to come before God and ask Him to intervene on your behalf. And there are two prayer requests in this passage I want to talk about. The first one's in verse 29. They prayed, And now, Lord, in light of the truth we've rehearsed, consider their threats, and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. Now, there are two ways of looking at this request. The first is the most obvious. You could say, well, based on this passage, it would be appropriate for the church to pray and ask God for boldness to preach in the face of entrenched opposition. And that certainly would be one level of application of this that's very appropriate. But I think this is narrative literature, so we back... Well, I know it's narrative literature, and because of that, I think we should step back and look for a little broader application, because the broader application is this. They ask for boldness to speak in the face of a pressing opposition. The larger principle is this. They asked for what they needed in the moment of the challenge they were facing in ministry. It just happened this time they needed boldness to face the opposition. But the broader application is this. As a ministry leader, you can come before God and ask Him for whatever you need that's pressing you in your present ministry situation. This means as leaders, we don't have to come to God like this. Well, God, I need help. I need a lot of it. You see it all. Pick something out and do something about it. I think it would be better to pray like this. Brother Lee, who testified earlier, would pray this way. God, I need disciple-making Christians to come and join my church. And God, I need them now. What are you facing in your situation? At Golden Gate Seminary, we ask God for things specifically. We've been asking God to give us an Old Testament professor to replace Dr. John Salehammer, who, by the way, I'm happy to report, is, health, is experiencing a revival or renewal of his health now that the stress of daily teaching has been removed. We're grateful for that. We're grateful for his contribution to our school. We've been asking God specifically to give us someone to replace him. And God is answering that prayer. 
We've been asking specifically for God to give us another professor in another discipline. A hard one to find, and God has miraculously brought some to, someone to us that we're interviewing next week. A specific request for a specific need in a specific place, and seeing God move in that way. And I ask you, what do you need where you're working? What do you need right now? Do you need money? As someone once said, you can pray all you want, but sometimes only money will do. I understand that. <laughs> You sometimes just have to have money to do ministry. Get down on your knees and say, God, we need cash. Cold hard cash. We don't need a promissory note. We don't need a pledge card. God, we need a check. Do you pray like that? Man, we pray that way at Golden Gate. We get down on our knees and say, God, we need the money. Now, I know you got so much money here at Southeastern, you'd never have to pray a prayer like that. Yeah, right. When I was a church planter, we moved to a community. We investigated for several weeks trying to find a place to meet on a Sunday. And we were turned back at every turn. Now, we were praying general prayers about God leading our church forward, but there came a crisis moment where we got together in a circle and said, God, we are out of options. We need you to give us a breakthrough and give us a meeting location. And someone in our group said, well, we've exhausted all of the opportunities in the local school districts and all the opportunities in this, but, you know, there's that little other school district that's right next to ours that it's kind of unusual, I won't go into the detail, but there was this little school district that hadn't ever been incorporated into the bigger one, and why don't we go ask them? Eh, well, all right, you know, man of faith that I am, I thought, what's the point? <laughs> but we asked God for a meeting place. And the guy that was helping me plant the church went over to meet the principal at school and walked in and said, hey, listen, I'm so-and-so, we're trying to plant a church, and we're looking for a meeting place, and, and, and we're willing to rent. We're not asking for a free thing. We know it costs. We're glad to pay. Would you have any openness at all to helping us? And this principal said, what kind of church? He said, well, it's, it's a Baptist church, but it's, it's really going to be open to all people. We want to reach people. We want to have a growing ministry. He said, okay. He said, I would be absolutely delighted to help you. Did you know that I'm an elder in such and such church down in the city of Portland? We did not know that. He said, I'm delighted to help you. What needs to happen? And he literally took my guy and went across to the school administrative offices that day and personally said, I want this guy to be able to rent from our school. Whatever it takes, we'll make it happen. That's the kind of way God likes to work, where you ask him for specific things. If you need money, ask him for money. If you need leaders, ask him for leaders. If you need a breakthrough of boldness, ask for that. But if you need a school to meet in to plant a new church, ask God for that. You know, sometimes I think we're afraid to ask God for things specifically because we don't want to put God on the spot, frankly, because we're afraid He won't come through and we'll look bad. And even God might look a little weaker than we'd want Him to be. I say get over trying to defend God with the shallowness and smallness of your prayer request and get down and specifically ask Him for what you need. And in this context, they ask God for boldness. And boy, they got it. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's Word with boldness. With boldness. I can't underscore it enough. 
the first level of asking is to ask God for what you need. Specifically, intentionally, directly. And then stand back and watch God act. But the second prayer request was a totally different kind of request. Continuing on in verse 29. They said, Lord, may we speak your message with complete boldness. And then they prayed this. While you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of our uh, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, that's a more general kind of request. Here's what they prayed. Lord, we need boldness to confront this, these antagonists who are opposing your message. And then beyond that, God, we ask you to simply work supernaturally to do what we don't even know how to describe, but we know needs to happen through our ministry. Send miracles, signs, and wonders to get the work done. Do you ever pray that way? God, do something that is so overwhelming that no one can take the credit for it. No one can explain how it happened. But it's simply so such a supernatural moment that everyone stands back with awe and says, God just moved. You know, sometimes I know what Golden Gate Seminary needs and sometimes I knew what we needed in our church plant. And I'm not shy about asking, but sometimes I know we need more than I can to quote the scripture, ask or think. And so I simply pray, God, come and do the supernatural here beyond anything we can describe. Now, let's talk about what happened. They prayed this prayer in the context of a miracle that had already happened. Remember, I told you in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John, you know the Vacation Bible School song, went up to pray and made a lame man along the way. You know that song? Please, I'm going to sing the whole thing if you don't. (laughs) President raised his hand. I'm moving on. I get the signal. Okay. But they had seen a man raised to health, a, a physical healing. Now, I'll just ask you, have you ever seen one of those? I, I have. I've observed a few miraculous healings. Here's the first one. First time this ever happened to me. I was a pastor in my first church, and a man named J.W., early 60s, was dying He had a mysterious illness that had come upon him. It sapped his vitality. He had been to every kind of medical treatment that could could be thought of at the time. He was hospitalized finally, and the family was called in, and the doctor said, it'll just be a matter of hours. Jean, his wife, called me, and she said, Pastor, I want you to come to the hospital and pray for J.W. to be healed. Well, we'd been working on this for some months with no progress. She said, I want you to anoint him with oil in the name of Jesus and pray for him to be healed. Now I'm getting a little nervous. At the time, I'm about a 26-year-old pastor, and frankly, this was not something I'd ever been asked to do before, and frankly, I wasn't sure I was prepared to do. But I poured a little vial of oil and rounded up a deacon, and we went to the hospital. And I went in the room and said, now, Jean, you've asked me to come here. And she said, I've asked you to come here, Pastor, because I'm desperate and I'll do what the Bible says. I want you to anoint my husband with oil and pray for him to be healed in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm trying to handle this appropriately, okay? I said, now, Jean, listen, you understand that verse in the Bible doesn't mean there's any magic in oil. I know that, Pastor. And you understand that, 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 doesn't, that if we do this, that doesn't mean that that something immediate is going to happen. She said, I know that. 
I said, you know, I may pray the best prayer I know how to pray, and, and God may answer no. And she said, I'm prepared for that, but if we don't ask, I know God's not going to answer. Now, I'm asking you, Pastor, to do this. And I'm thinking, oh, brother, okay. So I took out a little oil, and his family gathered around the bed, and they all held hands, and I just put a little oil on his forehead. And I prayed the most passionate prayer I could, because I really did love this man, care for his wife, and I really wanted God to act, but quite honestly... I wasn't expecting much. I mean, I'm just being honest, okay? And I prayed for him to be healed, and we finished the prayer. Now, he's unconscious. He's in a coma. He's, he's not even with us at this point. And we all shook hands and hugged, and I left. And on the way out, I said to the deacon, this is going to be a short night. I expect I'll be called sometime in the night to come out here. I just can't see him making it. I'm a man of faith, right? <laughs> so I go home, went to bed, woke up the next morning when the alarm went off and realized they hadn't called. So I got ready and I thought, well, before I go in the office even, I better go by the hospital and check on them. And I went to the hospital and I went up and, of course, the door's closed on the room and it's really quiet and I'm thinking, okay. And so I tapped on the door and a voice on the other side, a male voice, said, come on in. And I thought, that sounded like J.W., <laughs> And I cracked open the door and looked in, and the man is sitting there in the bed eating breakfast. And I said, J.W., he said, Pastor, great to see you. It took me two hours to get this breakfast, so I'm not going to stop eating, but you come on in and talk while I finish my breakfast. I said, I'm going to put that oil out on a TV preacher deal because, I mean, that stuff is good. <laughs> I believe I could get $1,000 a, a drop for that. You know, I think, whoa, baby. I went in and sat down, and, and I talked to J.W., and I said, J.W., you know, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. You've been really sick. I know. What happened? I woke up in the night. I felt great. Jean came back a little while later, and she's downstairs getting herself something to eat. And I said, Jean, she said, it's a, it's a miracle, Pastor. She said, in the night, I was just sleeping outside, catching a little nap, and the nurse came out and said, your husband's awake, he's asking for you. And I thought he was just going to be asking for me because he might be passing. And I went in and he's sitting up in the bed asking for where his underwear are. I mean, this man wants to know, where's the rest of my clothes? I'm ready for breakfast. How long have I been in the hospital? Now, he lived about 10 more years after that and then finally died of another, another, uh, another illness. All I'm telling you is that that we've all seen similar things where God either physically or in some other way did something supernatural around us or among us or with us, and we just stand back in awe and say, wow! And that's what happened with this church, with this incident in Acts chapter 3. Now, I lay that foundation because I want you to understand that when they prayed for miracles and signs and wonders, that was, that's what was in their mind, all right? But you're going to be shocked at what they got. Let me read what happened, the miracle sign and wonder that followed, wonder that followed the prayer. Verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then 
distributed to each person as anyone had a need. And Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, whom the apostles named Barnabas, which was translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And you know what happens next. Ananias and Sapphira show up and God strikes them dead for their duplicity in dealing with money. Now buckle your pew belt. The miracle sign and wonder that followed this prayer meeting was not another healing. It was a miraculous breakthrough of financial stewardship in the church. It was people rising up and giving what they had. It was a man selling a piece of property and intentionally lowering his standard of living to advance the kingdom of God. And then it was some people cheating God and getting struck down for what they had done. Now... I sometimes hear people say what they believe are the besetting sins and even the worst sin in the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm from California in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm the expert on talking to you about what sin looks like. People say, well, it's Internet pornography. It's some other kind of sexual sin outside of marriage. Or some others might say, no, that's not it. The greatest sin in our convention is the ignorance of the Word of God or our failure to pray. No, it's not any of that. Listen closely now. The besetting sin of the Southern Baptist Convention, and it goes from the convention to the churches to the individual believers, is our rampant materialism and greed that marks our culture. And it's no different in our churches. The Great Commission Resurgence Report said that 2.7% is all the typical Southern Baptist household gives to Christian work. I'm telling you, we stand embarrassed in front of a holy God for our greed and our materialism and our culture. Oh God, what is wrong with us when we live in the most prosperous economy in the world? In fact, we live in the greatest prosperity that's ever been known on planet Earth. And all we can drum up to give to God's work is 2.7 measly percent. I'm telling you, when revival comes in the Southern Baptist Convention, it won't be by a bunch of pew-jumping people who make a show of themselves in worship. And it won't necessarily even be by some kind of repentance from some kind of external sin like that. I'll know revival has come when people start bringing their offerings in bushel baskets and giving so much that they can't be stopped. That's how we'll know revival has come when God does that kind of miracle, sign, and wonder in our lives individually, in our churches, and in our denomination. I'd rather see this happen than another healing like started the story in Acts chapter 3. I hear us talk about being in economic recession. And just like our place, here at your place, you say, well, we haven't had salary increases for two or three years. I remind you there are underground pastors across the Middle East. Forget about having a salary increase. They've never had a salary. I say, people say, well, we're having to cut back a little bit. Right. And most of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Do you understand that? It's so easy to have a local-centric view of the economy. That's not how God sees the economy. God sees the whole globe all at once. And He still, despite what we've gone through in the past two years, looks down at the American church and says, it's the richest church on planet Earth. It's the most prosperous church I could possibly create. It's people who have so much. And they spend it on themselves. Individuals giving two point, or Households giving 2.7% of their income to God's work. 
Churches giving an ever-decreasing amount to missions and spending more and more on themselves. Churches going into massive debt to build palaces to ego rather than advancing the kingdom of God. When this church asked for a miracle sign and wonder, it did not get a healing. It got a financial revival. I may not get invited back, so I'm going to say this one more thing about that. (laughs) If you are here in this seminary and you're training to be a ministry leader in any capacity, if you have not grown to the place in your stewardship where you're surpassing the tithe and you're giving, you're not yet prepared to be a Christian leader. I would be embarrassed to be a tither. Oh, embarrassed. You say, well, that's because you make a fine salary, and I do. But I started giving more than a tithe of my income when I was 19 years old. And I've been steadily increasing the percentage of my giving almost every year. Now, I've had some years I didn't increase, but almost every year for now 30 years. And I have a financial giving goal in mind, a percentage out there, and my wife and I are getting there rapidly. Now we have all our children out of college, and this year we ramped up again. And the next three years we're going to ramp it on up. And in just a few short years we will have achieved a lifetime goal of giving a significant percentage of our income away to Christian work. We've made the decision our standard of living is this, and it's not going up. Recently, one of our board officers said, you know, Jeff, we really appreciate what you've done, and and we haven't paid you more, and we'd like to try next year to just do something. I said, fellas, it's fine if you do. I'm just going to give it away. (laughs) So it's really no stress on the seminary. Either way, if it makes you feel better, go ahead. (laughs) Have you come to that place in your life yet where you have settled the issue that you're going to be a generous Christian, a generous Christian? You know, that's where it starts, isn't it? I hate to say this. I don't have the data. I'm afraid to look it up. The reason churches, the reason the typical Christian household gives 2.7% to Christian work, I'm embarrassed to say, is probably because the typical pastor doesn't do much better. And, oh, God, help us as those who are training for ministry leadership to do better when we get the responsibility given to us. So here's what I said today. You want to pray and have a prayer meeting? Start by rehearsing God's truth. It'll change your perspective. It'll get you focused not on your problems, but on God, what He has to say about them. Then once you've got your perspective right, ask God for what you need. I mean ask Him boldly, specifically, directly for what you need in your setting right now to get your work done. And when you finish that prayer, then pray this way. God, beyond what I know I need, I need you to work supernaturally to do miracles, signs, and wonders beyond anything I can ask or think. And don't stereotype what that will look like. Because in this context, when it happened, it was a financial set of miracles that removed the greed and materialism from the church and judged it when it remained. But nonetheless, equally supernatural to what happened when that lame man got up and walked. So let's leave today committed to pray and to pray this way and see how God might work. Let's pray together. Father, we rehearse your truth this morning. You are good. You are a creator who's over all. You are loving. You are a father who condescends to us. You are a Lord who stands over us. Thank you for this truth about who you are. Now, Father, we also have needs. 
And just now around this room, individuals are calling out with specific things they need in their ministry setting right now. Hear their prayers and answer them by your grace and for your glory. And then, Father, for Southeastern Seminary and for Golden Gate as well, I pray that you will give us miracles, signs, and wonders, that you will do supernatural things through us beyond anything we can ask or think, and, Lord, specifically, I pray you might do a miracle in our generation to change our perspective on money, on material things, on our possessions, on our standard of living. And, Father, give us a revival that touches us so deeply that we become the most generous churches that have ever been on this planet. Thank you for the prosperity we enjoy. May we learn to be a better steward of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.